0: We've been studying biblical theology, and the approach that I've taken is as we are looking at the grand narrative of Scripture, kind of that plot line, the themes of Scripture, is to look through the covenants and to see how God has entered into a relationship with man through the covenants. And so we looked at creation, we looked at Adam and Eve in the garden. Last week we looked at Noah, God's covenant with Noah and with all of humanity. And so in the garden, we saw that God, God gave them a, a, an order, He gave them a command to not eat of the fruit. They rebelled, they ate of the fruit but then God gave them a promise, right? Right after we saw that curse, we saw God make them a glorious promise in Genesis 3.15 about the seed of woman and man who would come and crush Satan's head. And then we watched that kind of play out through the narrative in the storyline of scripture. Then last week we looked at Noah. We looked at how the wickedness on earth had multiplied and ultimately God judged that wickedness in the flood, but that he saved all of humanity ultimately through one representative head, Noah. And we looked at with Noah, How could Noah be that one, that seed that was promised, that one that we're awaiting? And in Noah, it almost looks like that's going to be the case, as we saw. He had the name for it. Uh, His father had named him with that name of that hope, that expectation of one that would overturn the curse. We saw that in his name. And we see that Noah is righteous. We see Noah as a representative head. So we're seeing all these, these, these things in Noah that almost seem to appear, almost seem to add up to be that seed that we are awaiting to crush Satan's head. But what does Noah do after he gets off the boat is he eats of the fruit, much like Adam. So just like Adam fell in the garden eating of the fruit, so does Noah go. He eats of the fruit. He gets drunk. He's exposed in his nakedness, much like Adam. So we looked at some of those similarities there. And he's also covered. His nakedness is also covered. But unlike Adam, whose nakedness is covered by God, Noah's nakedness is covered by his sons. And so even in that, we're seeing more theological truths come about as we're we're watching Noah. We're seeing the continuity between Noah and Adam. We're seeing their failure. But then God makes a covenant with Noah, that covenant of hope, that promise that he would not again flood the earth, that he would not again judge the earth in a like manner as he did in the flood. And so we see God's common grace, his patience with humanity, and really, again, that foundation by which God's redemptive plans can occur. Because if God didn't say, I won't judge the earth, then he could crush all of us which is what we exactly deserve but yet he promised that he would not do that not only that he gave us a covenantal sign of the rainbow he set his bow in the clouds as a reminder of his patience his faithfulness to his promises and that he would one day ultimately restore his creation and so as we're going from there to Abraham what do we see open up to chapter 10 Again, I'm going to kind of give just a brief overview to chapter 10 of Genesis until we get to chapter 12. But I want to connect us from Noah to Abraham. Again, there's continuity between these covenants. There's continuity in that great narrative, that great storyline of Scripture. And so again, we get a genealogy. So we get another genealogy. I talked last week about the importance of genealogies. They're, they're entered into the text for a specific reason. And so Moses is giving us a genealogy. He's reminding us of that hope of the seed. He's reminding us that God will send a Savior through humanity. He gives us a genealogy of the sons of Noah. And so in chapter 10, we see a genealogy of Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And we see a pretty long section for Ham. Ham was the son that dishonored his father in his nakedness. Ham was the son that was cursed by Noah, will ultimately be cursed by God. And in that genealogy, we see Nations such as Egypt, Babylon, Assyria, and even Sodom and Gomorrah. And so we're already watching, again, those Genesis curses playing out as we watch the seed of man and the seed of Satan, ultimately, uh, battling back and forth, even through these genealogies. We see these truths because Egypt, Assyria, Babylon, Sodom and Gomorrah, these nations, Assyria, they will be trouble for Israel along the way. And so there will be a battle between the seed along the way. But then we see the genealogy of Shem. Again, it's providing us hope. It's reminding us of the promises of God. It's connecting us back to that Genesis 3.15 garden that that seed would come. And so we we end with that genealogy of Shem beginning in verse 22 of chapter 10. But Moses interjects another narrative into this genealogy. So then we get the Tower of Babel that we're so familiar with. And so again, Moses is taking us from a genealogy to another theological truth, reminding us of the wickedness and sinfulness of man. Immediately after they get off the ark, we get genealogies. And right when we break back into narrative, again, man is disobedient to God. Again, man is failing in their covenantal faithfulness. Man is, again, showing that we cannot keep The promises of God we in our flesh are not going to be the ones that are going to deliver this salvation and so in Babel we see man coming together but coming together again in opposition with God and so chapter 11 verse 4 if someone will read that for me chapter 11 verse 4 of Genesis So as Carl was reading, there's some things to key on on. Let us build ourselves a city, a tower with its top in the heavens, and let us make a name for ourselves. There's a lot of us going on there, a lot of ourselves, our, we. This is very self-centered. This is, again, in opposition to God. God said be fruitful and multiply, to scatter across the land, to have dominion. And what are they doing? They're staying in one place. They're building a tower up into the heavens so that they can make their own name great. And again, this is in complete opposition to God. Their tower flies in the face of God. And what does God do? He scatters them. Again, we see judgment. God scatters them and he confuses their language. That their languages would be confused and that they would scatter across the earth. He does what they were not doing themselves. And so again, mankind's initial acts after the flood is once again disobedience and rebellion. But what does God do? Again, God acts. And so we see God act, and what do we see next? Well, we return to that genealogy. So again, Moses broke that genealogy and then returns to it. And so again, there's, there's a theological point he's trying to make there is he returns back to Shem's descendants, back into this genealogy of hope that we have. And so that's where we return. Uh, in verse 10, we go to Shem's descendants, ultimately, that will end in Abraham. But if we look back, we see... That Moses is showing us that the hope is through Shem. Look with me in chapter 9, verse 27. Noah blesses two of his sons. He curses Ham. Again, the one that dishonored him in his nakedness. Chapter 9, verse 27. Moses writes, May God enlarge Japheth, and let him dwell in the tents of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant." So as we saw, Shem is going to be the seed of promise. How is it that Japheth will be blessed? Through Shem. Through being in Shem's tent. That is how he will receive the blessing, is through dwelling with Shem, through being close with Shem. When Amelia and I first got married, I, I got her this, this little pink umbrella. It's a very small umbrella. It's a one-person umbrella fitting for a rainy night like this. But it's, it's, it's for that one person, that's it. And so a lot of times we have a bigger umbrella, but whenever we go out, it seems like we only have this little umbrella. So for the last 10 years of our marriage, we're always lugging around this little tiny umbrella wherever we go and it's raining. And so what happens is as it's raining, I let her hold the umbrella and I try to kind of sneak in on it so I can at least maybe get half of my body dry. And I'm blessed by that umbrella in as so much as I'm close to Amelia. As I'm tied to her, I get that blessing of that umbrella. The farther I drift off from her, the more I'm going to get rained on. Or sometimes I get poked in the eye by the metal frame because it's just that right height where it pokes me in the forehead or the eye. But as I'm tied to her, I get that blessing of that umbrella. It's the same for Japheth. As he is tied to Shem, he will be blessed by God. As he dwells in Shem's tent, so will he be blessed by God. And we see that play out throughout the biblical narrative. Even with the Gentiles, as the Gentiles are tied to Israel, as they're brought into the covenant, they're blessed by God. The farther they drift out, the more that they are in opposition to God's seed, so will they be cursed. And so even in this, we already see means of the Gentile inclusion. We're already seeing again that God's God's means of grace is for all of humanity. We saw that again in Genesis 3.15, coming out of the garden. We saw that in Noah, and we're seeing it again here. That even though we see this opposition between the two seeds, we also see God's hope for all of humanity. That ultimately, it's not a new thing, the Gentile inclusion in the New Testament. Though it comes at a greater scale than expected, it is a mystery in many ways. It's not a new thing. The blessing to the nations was current in the covenant we're about to see, and even all the way going back to creation. So going back to Shem's genealogy, again, this genealogy of hope, we see these descendants continue in verse 27 of chapter 11. Chapter 11, verse 27. Now these are the generations of Terah. Terah fathered Abram, Nahor, and Haran, and Haran fathered Lot. Haran died in the presence of his father Terah in the land of his kindred in Ur of the Chaldeans. This is that Babylonian region. And Abram and Nahor took wives the name of Abram's wife was Sarai, and the name of Nahor's wife is Milcah, the daughter of Haran, the father of Milcah, and Iscah. Now Sarai was barren. She had no child. Whenever you see commentary in a genealogy, there's, there's typically going to be some sort of theological truth. There's typically some reason why there's commentary within a genealogy. So far, we've seen mainly names, some places in the text, but we learn something about Abram at this point in Sarai. Sarai was barren. She had no child. This problem problem will play out through the next chapters because this is the seed through whom that righteous one would come, that righteous seed will come. But there's a problem. Sarai is barren. And in this time, this would be a curse unto their family. This would be a terrible reality. Abram's name is Exalted Father. He has a name like Exalted Father. What a great name to have a bunch of children. And Sarah is barren. She is barren. It, it's a gut-wrenching verse. We read over it too quickly, but it's the problem that will play out because ultimately it's only going to be God who can undo this barrenness. Them in their own strength, them in their own flesh will continue to bring forth this promise, but it will be God that overturns that dead womb. It will be God that brings forth this promise. And we'll see that play out when them, after 90 years of living, will end up having this child of promise. But it won't come easy along the way. And then in chapter 12, we're introduced to the call of Abram. Chapter 12, verse 1, Now the Lord said to Abram, Go. Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. Abram's called to leave everything. Would have been a a land of of idolatry and and pagan worship. Babylon, that that, uh, area will be uh, a continual nuisance for Israel throughout the years, throughout the kingdom era. We will see difficulty with Babylon along the way. And God is calling him out of this land. He's saying, go, come to me. It's much like Jesus as he calls the disciples. Jesus has the same call upon us as he calls us away from that life we once lived, as he calls us away from idolatry and self-love and the the things that we used to live for, and he says, come with me. That's exactly what God does with Abraham. And he tells him to go from his country, his his people, his father's house, but he's to go somewhere, and it's to the land. It's to the land. God is going to bring him to a land, to a place And again, we're seeing these these truths that are starting to come out and as this covenant is being formed that God is going to return us to the land ultimately. Ultimately, what we lost in the garden, God is working to restore. And we're already seeing it in the promises that are beginning to unfold with Abraham is that God ultimately will return us and one day that will be to the new heavens and new earth as we see God's fullest restoration. So he says, "Go, go to this land that I will give you and I will make you a great nation. So there will be a nation that comes from Abraham. There will be a people that come from him. Ultimately, we'll see that in its fulfillment in Israel. And ultimately, again, God will work to restore all of humanity. It will go beyond even Israel, ultimately, in the New Testament, as Paul looks back on this, understanding that truth. But I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great. And why is he going to do it? So that you will be a blessing. What were they doing at the Tower of Babel? Making a name for themselves. They were making a name for themselves and now God says, I will call you away from that land. I will call you away from this people and it will be I that makes you a great name. I will be the one that that gives you a new name that causes you to be the person that I have created you to be. But it's for a reason. It's so that he will be a blessing. So that he will be a blessing. So again, God is not just going to bless him for himself, he is doing it so that Abraham would be a conduit of blessing to the nations ultimately. That is the purpose of it. I used to work at, at Sam's Club for a time. Sam's Club is affiliated with, with uh, Walmart, obviously one of the biggest companies in the country, and so they, they know logistics, they, they, they understand inventory management and things like that. And one thing they're big on, like a lot of companies, is what's called JIT, which is just-in-time inventory. So just-in-time inventory is companies try to have the least amount of liabilities as they can. They don't want to sit on their inventory because the more inventory they sit on, that's a higher cost that they have to sit on it that they're not selling product. So what they try to do is limit that time between when the manufacturer makes it and it gets on the shelf and ultimately sold to the customer. And so they try to limit their warehouses, which limits overhead, It limits personnel it limits cost of of land and more buildings and so they do a good job of really trying to use all the numbers they can use all the computer systems they have doing all these algorithms algorithms things like that in order to be able to deliver just in time inventory they don't want to sit on their inventory because there's a cost to it there's a great cost for a company to do that if any of you are in business you understand that abraham's not to sit on his blessings He's not to make warehouses for his blessings. He's not just to store them up. He's to be a conduit with them. He's to get them out unto the nations. They're not just to sit doing nothing with Abraham. He's to bless the nations with them. And so in verse three, Moses continues, I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse. So again, just like we saw with Japheth and Shem, those that are tied with you, those that are with the seed of promise will be blessed, but those that do not will be cursed. We're seeing this this reality play out, is that those that are with them will be blessed, and those that not will be cursed. And he says, in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Again, who? All the families in the earth. God's redemptive plan is for all of humanity. It wasn't just for Israel. It was for all of humanity. God is restoring what was broken in the garden. He's going to do it through a particular people, through a particular seed. But he's doing it for his glory unto the entire nations. And so we see that even right here. The witnessing to Gentiles, the witnessing to unbelievers is not just some newfangled thing of the New Testament. It was intended to be the call of God's people since the beginning. That we would be a people that would glorify God through sharing of his excellencies. And that's exactly what Abraham was meant to do. And so how does Abraham respond to this call and to these promises? Verse 4, Moses writes, so Abraham went as the Lord had told him. I think that's a beautiful verse. Again, some of these verses are very easy to read through or familiar with them. But what does he do? He goes as the Lord told him. That's how we're to respond. Is we're to respond in the manner which God has told us. We're to respond in the manner which he has shown us. And that's exactly what Abram does. And it's, it says, and Lot went with him. Abraham was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. So again, he's 75 years old. Even when be- this whole journey begins, he's already old as God is calling to him. The promises would already seem slightly ridiculous at this age, much, much less as he continues to affirm them into the 90s of Abraham. And so ultimately, he's promising him this land, this nation, this great name. He's to be a blessing. And we're already seeing all these things starting to to come about in Abraham's life. But then there's another problem. There's a famine in the land. So as we kind of fast forward to verses 10 through 20, I'm going to give kind of just a brief overview of these verses. But basically, the way it goes is there's a famine in the land. They go to Egypt. Abraham sees that there's a problem. The problem is, is that his wife is very beautiful. And he knows that if he goes into that land with his beautiful wife, that they're probably going to try to kill him in order to take his wife. And so he comes up with with this entire entire story of how Sarai is his sister, that she needs to go there and tell them they're his sister so that he doesn't get killed. And he even says, so that it will be well with me. So he's trying to kind of cover his own hide as he goes into Egypt. He's more concerned with himself than he is with his wife. And so what happens is exactly as he said is they go there and the Egyptians see that his wife is beautiful and they take her into Pharaoh's harem. This is a massive problem because the promises of God are now at stake because Sarai is also the recipient of these blessings through which they will come through Abram and Sarah, but now she's with Pharaoh in his harem. Not only that, Abram was called to be a blessing to the nations and what happens, he ends up being a cursing to Pharaoh. Because what happens is God begins to curse Pharaoh's household because of this. Again, not the first time Pharaoh's household will be cursed in the ultimate salvation of his people. Again, we'll see this play out even. But Pharaoh's being cursed because he's brought Sarai unknowingly into his household. So what's interesting is finally it comes about what's going on. And Pharaoh comes and calls out Abram. He calls out Abram for lying to him. This is Abram who was supposed to be a blessing to the nations, and now instead he's become a cursing. And now the nations are, are pointing out his infidelity to God in lying. It's always convicting. I'm sure that's happened to some of you as believers, right? Where We're out in the world, and we're supposed to be the witnesses. We're supposed to be the ones living righteously. And then an unbeliever tells us, well, you're not supposed to do that. And hopefully that convicted you when they said that. But that's exactly what Pharaoh's, or Abram's done. He's gone into Pharaoh's household and he's lived unrighteously. He's lied. And now Pharaoh's calling him out for being a cursing. But fortunately, God acts. Again, God is going to be faithful to his promise. And we'll see that despite what Abram does, God is faithful. Then in chapter 13, we see Abram and Lot separate. Then in chapter 14, as, as the kings have taken Lot, Chapter 14, Abram rescues Lot. Abram will rescue Lot. Uh, We see this interesting story of this priest, Melchizedek. He's this kind of mysterious figure. He's this king-priest. Abram will ultimately show homage to him. He he will give him uh, a tenth of what he has. But he does it in contrast to the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah. And so ultimately, Abram is identifying himself with this king-priest, Melchizedek rather than the kings of the land and so we're already seeing Abram kind of starting to separate starting to identify I wish we can get into it more but the author of Hebrews points to Melchizedek ultimately as how Jesus is a priest because there's this whole problem how can Jesus be a priest if he's not of the proper lineage of the priesthood and the author of Hebrews ties him back to Melchizedek but even in this Abram is showing homage to Melchizedek to again this priest king this mysterious priest king that will come up later in scripture. And then we get to chapter 15. And we see the formal covenant, covenant being formed in chapter 15. And we talked about covenants the last couple of weeks. Uh, two weeks ago we really went into covenants a little more in depth what a covenant is. But this is really a perfect example of that covenantal framework. What happens here. That biblical covenant. So chapter 15 starting in verse 1. After these things the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. So again, Abram has this vision, and what comes to him? The word of the Lord. When the word of the Lord shows up, things happen. We know this already starting from creation. Moses is the same author that that wrote that creation account. He understands the power of the word of God. And so Abram, this vision comes to him, that the word of God shows up, and God says, fear not, Abram. I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abram said... O oh Lord, what will you give me, for I continue childless? Again, a- Abram knows the problem here. There's a problem that he is childless. He is old, God has promised a seed, he's promised offspring, and yet he is childless. And the heir of my house is Eleazar of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. Abraham understands the promises of God. So it's not like he's clueless to the promises. He understands them. He says, you've promised me offspring. I know I need offspring, but yet this Eleazar of Damascus is going to be the one inheriting all these, all these promises, all these, all these blessings you've given me. I have no heir. He's kind of like that man in Mark that says, I believe, but help my unbelief. That I, I, need strength. I understand your promises, but they don't make sense to me. I don't know how this is actually going to happen, God. It it is impossible. I've never seen a man of my age have a child like this. But then God continues. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. Again, we're given this assurance that the word of the Lord has come to him. This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. He outright tells him, no, that is not the plan that I have for you. It will not be Eleazar of Damascus. Instead, it will be your own flesh. Your own physical son will be your heir, the heir of promise. And he brought him outside and said, look toward the heaven and number the stars. If you are able to number them, then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. For some of us, that might be hard to, to recognize. We go out in the city, we can walk out right now, we won't really see very many stars. But even on a clear day in Louisville, you don't see very many stars. Between pollution and all the reflection of the lights, it can be very difficult to see the stars. I remember when I was a young child, and we'd, we'd go up in the mountains in California a lot, and the mountains there are very high-altitude mountains. And so I remember one night, there was supposed to be uh, shooting stars that night. And so we all laid down outside our campground, and there was no fires, no lights on. And we all just laid down on the ground and looked up and watched this beautiful display of falling stars. And and it was an amazing thing. I still remember. But I remember looking up and thinking, I've never seen the sky like this. Even though I was in a small town from California, you couldn't see that many stars from my town. And going up in the mountains, I could just see that amazing sky with all those stars in it. I can only imagine Abraham probably would have seen more stars than I saw that day. Because, again, there's still a lot more pollution now and things like that. And so he looks up, and he sees this multitude of stars, and God said, so shall your offspring be. Much like Noah, God said to Noah, look up into the heavens and see that rainbow. See that bow that I've put in the heavens. That will give you assurance. That will be your covenantal sign. That will be your reminder that my promises are sure. And so again, God says, Abram, look up into the sky and be assured. Every time you need assurance that my promises will happen, all you have to do is look up. And you'll be reminded that I'm the God that keeps his promises. What does Abraham do? He responds to this. Verse 6. And he believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. When Paul goes on and on about justification by faith in Romans, he points back to this. And he points back to Abraham. Justification by faith, much like witnessing to the nations, was not, again, a new thing to the New Testament. Abraham was justified by faith alone. As we see, he's already slipped up. He'll continue to slip up along the way. He does not have a perfect righteousness. That's very clear to us. Noah, though it's going well for a while, we see Noah's imperfect righteousness. So instead, he is justified by faith He first believes, and it's counted to him as righteousness, his faith in the promises of God. And he goes on in verse 7, And he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. But he said, O Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? So again, he believes, it's been counted to him as righteousness, but he's wrestling with his belief. He's wrestling with the promises of God. He's wrestling with the certainty of what God has said. And so God responds in verse 9. He said to him, bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, a ram three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And he brought him all these things. What does he do? He cuts them in half. He cut them in half and laid each over and against the other, but he did not cut the birds in half. And when the birds of prey came down on the carcasses, Abram drove them away. So as we talked about the covenant, covenant ritual, is what they would do is they'd cut these animals in half and, and they would split them out, much like these pews are right now. You could walk down the middle and you could see an animal, half of an animal to the left and half to the right. And what that signified is the two parties would walk through those carcasses. And whoever was unfaithful to the covenant, that was the reminder that that was to be their fate. That I am making a death bound oath. A death bound promise that I will be faithful to this covenant. Lest the covenantal curses come upon me. And that's exactly what's happening here. Is God is putting on display this covenant. And exactly what will happen to those that are unfaithful to this covenant. But what, what happens in this covenant is unique. In verse 12. As the sun was going down. A deep sleep fell on Abram. Abram has this God-ordained sleep that occurs. And behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. Then the Lord said to Abram, No for certain, again, assurance. He's giving him assurance. No for certain. Abram, I know you're struggling with your belief. I'm going to give you certainty of what I'm about to do. Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there and they will be afflicted for 400 years. Does that sound familiar? The events of the exodus, he's already starting to point forward to. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve and afterward, I'm sorry, I will bring judgment upon the nation that they serve and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace, and you shall be buried in a good old age. And they shall come back here in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. So we're already seeing commentary on why the people in the land will be judged. God's not just giving them this land for an arbitrary reason. They will be judged. The, the, the Israelites will be a means of judgment against the wickedness in the land, but their, their wickedness has not gotten to that point yet. But God ultimately will deliver them. So we already see the exodus and we see the conquest that will happen under Joshua and ultimately even lead into the, the, the reign of David. But what, what happens next is amazing. When the sun, hit, the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between the pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying to your offspring, I give this land from the river of Egypt to the great river, the Euphrates. God acts again. He causes Abram to sleep and to witness this covenant ceremony. He's just a passive participant at this point. As we see this representation of God pass through the dead carcasses. Only one member of this covenant is taking upon himself the covenantal curses. God is exempting Abraham from these covenantal curses unto death. But he's binding himself to it. The certainty of God's promise is upon this binding oath that God has made. This is the foundation by which salvation will occur. We're already learning about the truth of atonement right here. We're learning about the truth that ultimately it will be God who dies. It will be God who takes the curse upon himself for our unfaithfulness. We will be the ones that will be unfaithful to this covenant. We will be the ones that fail along the way. But it will be God that will take upon himself that great curse. And so we see this wonderful covenant ceremony. And then as we turn over to chapter 16, we see again another letdown. Sarai and Hagar and that whole, that whole debacle with Ishmael. And we see again another failure. We continue to see these great acts of God and then what happens? The human party in the covenant fails. And once again that happens. But immediately in chapter 17 we're reminded of the covenant. We're brought right back to that covenant that God had just promised. Chapter 17 verse 1. When Abram was 99 years old the Lord appeared to him and said I am God Almighty. He says I am El Shaddai. This is Where he reveals himself as God Almighty, the one powerful God. And he says, walk before me and be blameless, that I may make my covenant between me and you, and may multiply you greatly. Then Abram fell on his faith, and God said to him, behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. And so again, we see God reaffirming his promises to him. This is not a second covenant. This is, again, we're seeing that progression of God's covenant relationship with Abram, but this is not a second covenant. The biblical authors, as they look back on the covenant with Abram, they they see it as one covenant. It's very clear. And so this is, again, we're just watching the outworking of that covenant and God giving him the certainty of now a covenantal sign, which is what's going to happen. And so in verse 5, we see God change his name. No longer shall you be called Abram, which I said was exalted father, great father. So again, this, this name of a childless man, of great father. No longer will you be called that, but your name shall be Abraham. For I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. So now he's 99 years old, and now instead of great father, now he's the father of a multitude of nations. So again, it almost seems laughable, which one of them does laugh. Because it seems laughable, right? I mean, it seems like almost a proper response is that this old man comes back with this new name of father of many nations. But he says, I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make you into nations and kings. We see now this, this new idea in Genesis 17, that not only will you have nations come from you, but there will be kings. Ultimately, we'll see this continue in the Davidic covenant. As we see that connecting point where God will promise a king from the line of David. But nations and kings shall come from you and I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you. So this covenant will continue with your offspring, with your seed. Throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant. This covenant will not fail. It will not end. To be God to you and your offspring after you. I will be your God. It's exactly what God is doing. He is calling humanity back to himself. He's saying, I will be your God. I will restore that broken humanity. I will restore what was lost in the garden. I will make you a people unto myself. And that's exactly what God is doing here. We're watching this covenant play out. It goes on in verse 8. And I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojourners, All the land of Cana for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. And God said to Abraham, As for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your offspring and you throughout their generations, after you throughout their generations. This is my covenant which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Again, we're seeing me, you, your offspring, uh, this repetition that's occurring that's pointing to the fact that this will continue. And that's why we see the biblical authors throughout the Old Testament mention God as the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. We continue to see them use that formula because they're trusting in God's promises. They're understanding that this is the God of the promise. The same God that was the God of Abraham is our God. And that gave Israel assurance. It gave them comfort. And then in verse 11 Or verse 10, this is my covenant which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring. After you, every male among you shall be circumcised. So we see the great covenantal sign that God is giving them. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins. And it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. So he's giving them, much like with Noah, with that covenantal sign of the rainbow. Something that Noah could look to to know that God's promises are sure. So he is giving Abraham and his offspring a covenantal sign so that they could be reminded of the promises of God so they could know with certainty of what God is going to do he goes on and says he who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised every male throughout your generation whether born in your household this is important or bought with your money from any foreigner who is not of your offspring so outsiders have opportunities to get into the covenant they have an opportunity to be in covenantal relationship with the one true and living God. Again, we're already seeing this, that God is working to restore all of humanity. That those that would be tied to Abraham, to Israel, to the people of God, that they would trust in the one true and living God, that they would have means by which they can get on in on the covenantal promises of God. And so God establishes this covenant. We see Isaac's birth being promised. Isaac which means laughter again because they laughed over the promises of God and then we continue Abraham intercedes for Sodom God rescues Lot again we're familiar with that story of chapter 19 God destroys Sodom we see Abraham and Abimelech another it's almost like an exact repeat of what God did in Egypt Again, we're seeing Abraham, even after these wonderful promises, these covenantal signs, we're seeing him again trying to force the promises of God by his own hand. We're seeing him fail in the promises of God. Then we see the birth of Isaac in chapter 21, and then we get to 22. Abraham has been witnessing the hand of God in his life. He's been witnessing the certainty of God in his promises his son has been born. He's seen the fruition of the promises of God. But then God tests him with the unthinkable. Chapter 22, verse 1. After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham. And he said, Here I am. He said, Take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love. So take that one and only son that you have, that son of promise, that seed that promised seed, take him and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I tell you. So you will take him up the hill, that son of yours, and you will offer him as an offering. So Abraham rose early in the morning. We don't see any protest. He doesn't question God at this point. He's been witnessing what God has done in his life. He's seen the promises of God. His faith has been strengthened. And so he rose. So he rises early in the morning to do the unthinkable. He saddles his donkey. He took two of his young men with him, his son Isaac, and he cut the wood for the burnt offering. He arose and went to the place of which God had told him. So again, he is perfectly obedient, he's doing exactly what God has told them. And on the third day, he lifted up his eyes and he saw the place from afar. So he sees this place. Then Abraham said to his young men, stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son. And he took in his hand the fire and the knife. So they went both of them together. Again, Abraham is prepared to do what God has told him. He's prepared to be obedient, even unto killing the child of promise, the one in whom these blessings will come. He easily could have said, God, this is the, the child of promise. God, this is the one through the blessings will come. Don't you understand you can't kill Isaac? Yet he is obedient. And what does Isaac respond with? Isaac says this to his father, My father. And he said, Here I am, my son. He said, Behold the fire in the wood. So he understands about sacrifice. He understands the sacrificial system. He clearly has seen his father do this before. And he understands the purpose of why they're there, but he's confused. He says, But where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Where's the Lamb, Father? We're at the altar. We're ready to sacrifice. Where's the Lamb? It's an important question. John the Baptist will ultimately answer this question. He'll say, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. John the Baptist comes along and answers Isaac's question Where's the Lamb? Where is the Lamb? Verse 8, Abraham said, again, he, he understands his God, he trusts his God, and he says, God will provide for himself the land for a burnt offering, my son. So they went, both of them, together. Ultimately, we know that God will provide a lamb in this situation, that God, that Abraham does not ultimately have to sacrifice his son. We see God's grace in this. But again, in Abraham, we see The promises of God. We see that God will restore them to a land. That God will make them into a nation. Kings will come from them. That offspring will come from Abraham. And we also learn that God will bind himself. By a death bound curse. To his people. That he will will go to the tree. That God will actually do what Abraham was called to do to Isaac. That God will actually hang his son. On a tree. From Deuteronomy we'll learn that those hung on a tree are cursed. Jesus will be cursed. He will take the curse upon himself. The curse of the covenant. He will take it upon himself on our behalf. He will be that lamb of God that we desperately need. And we're seeing all of this just in Abraham. Abraham is pointing us forward to these truths. That the God of Abraham is our God. And Paul understood this. Turn to Galatians 3. Galatians 3. Paul's battling back against the Judaizers, those that are trying to to bring the law back in upon the people. There were people that were starting to go back to the law. They had a misunderstanding of justification by faith, and so Paul is riding the ship. He's battling back against these Judaizers. He's reminding them of justification by faith alone. Chapter 3, verse 8, Paul writes in the Scripture, Foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham. Again, it says God preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham. That in Abraham... In some sense, we have the gospel. That in some sense, we, we can understand the gospel through Abraham, though it's in a seed form, as we talked about from Genesis 3.15, the seed form of the promise. It was sufficient for them to be justified by faith. They had sufficient revelation in order to be justified by faith. He goes on to say beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. So again, this idea that the gospel is coming through this blessing of offspring, As much as I'd like to continue going through this important text that has these connecting points, I'm going to skip ahead to verse 16 of chapter 3. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. So again, to Abraham and that continuation through the offspring, it does not say, and to offsprings. So Paul's drawing this distinction. It doesn't say to offsprings. Even though what's interesting is the Old Testament, when you talk of offspring, it typically is a collective. It typically is the offsprings. But it can also be singular. It can be offspring. And so you could say, well, is it offsprings or offspring? And you could also say, you could just answer that question with yes. It, it's collective and it's singular. Um, and Paul's, Paul's pointing out the singularity, the particularity of this promise in verse 16. He says it does not say offsprings, right? Referring to many, but referring to one. And so Paul's looking back on this promise to Abraham And he's saying, this promise was referring to one. And which one? And to your offspring, who is Christ. So Paul's looking back and realizing that the promises of God, they find their fulfillment in Christ. That is the one by whom these promises will come through. That is the one who is blessed by God. He is the true Israelite, the seed of Abraham, whom the blessings of God will be given to us through. He is the conduit of blessings by which we will be blessed. And then he goes on in verse 29 of chapter 3. And if you're Christ, then what are you? You're Abraham's offspring. If you're Christ, you are Abraham's offspring. your are heirs according to the promise. That we stand in the promises of Abraham only if we stand in Christ. That is through Christ that these promises will reach their fulfillment. And that's exactly what the Pharisees didn't understand in John 8. When they battle back against Jesus and they identify with Abraham, they say to to Jesus, oh, we're children of Abraham. Abraham is our father. And they're pleading Abraham as their father. But we know that God could raise up children from Abraham, even from stones, is what Jesus says in John. And so Jesus responds to them, if you were children of Abraham, you would know me. And then in chapter 8 of John, he continues and says, you're actually children of Satan. Being physical descendants of Abraham was not sufficient. It was by faith in the promised seed that was to come. And Paul points back and says, that seed is Christ. 100% that seed is Christ. And if you want to be blessed by Abraham, if you want to be blessed by the promises of Israel, what do you do? You need to be tied to Jesus Christ. And you need to have faith in him. And then you will be justified by faith like Abraham was. Does anyone have any questions before we close tonight? All right, we'll close in prayer. Father of grace, we thank you for your promises. We thank you that you would indeed covenant with us even though we are unfaithful to your covenants. We thank you that you would commit yourself unto death on our behalf, a death on the cross. And we thank you so much for your son's death that he died in our place, Lord. What a wonderful reality. And I pray that we would more and more realize your promises and have assurance and certainty in our faith and that you would help us in our faith to have reassurance and that in areas of unbelief, that you would give us belief. And we ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.